1: Hello everyone and welcome to the New Books Network Podcast. I'm Deidre tyler host. Today we'll be talking with Elizabeth R. Theron, author of Longstreet, The Confederate General Who Defiled the South. How are you doing today?
0: Oh, very well. Thank you so much, Deidre. It's a p- pleasure to be on, on the podcast. Thank you. I wonder
1: if you could start by telling us a few words about yourself and how you got started on this project.
0: Ah, thanks for asking. Well, I'm a historian. I teach at the University of Virginia. I'm a historian of the American South and the Civil War era, Reconstruction, Emancipation, uh, and and sort of all things 19th century. Uh, and and I've also done some work in in gender history, and I. Uh, was drawn to this project for a number of reasons one of which is that biography is a really interesting and and challenging genre i'd written a biography some years back of a civil war spy with a very unlikely story she was a white southern woman who was a spy for the union during the civil war in in civil war richmond the confederate capital and she led a sort of interracial spy ring of southern unionists who helped U.S. Grant and other union commanders by providing them with military intelligence. That book is called Southern Lady Yankee Spy. And this sort of got me interested in the challenge of writing about people who are mavericks, you know, who go against the grain and against what's expected. She she certainly was a a maverick, became a supporter of Black civil rights and women's suffrage after the Civil War, although she stayed in Richmond. And 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 uh, you know was very embattled as as a result encountered all sorts of opposition so to me biography is is a you know wonderful genre for getting at some complex issues through the lens of a single life in the case of van leu the issue i wanted to get at was the story of southerners who who opposed the confederacy during the civil war in, in the case of longstreet the story I wanted to illuminate is the story of Reconstruction. Po- post-war Reconstruction is so complicated; it was uh, sort of a long period with many phases. It played out somewhat differently in each of the, you know, former Confederate states. And I felt that Longstreet's life, particularly the, the post-Civil War part of his life, was a way at, of, of getting at uh, this, this, uh, you know, challenging period of Reconstruction. Telling the story of another maverick who, whose life takes some unexpected, you know, uh, twists and turns. And another way, too, for me of of getting at the theme of dissent and division within the American South, uh, which, is, which has been a big theme of my work all along.
1: Now, in Chapter 1, you talk about the making of a rebel, and you start with describing June 17, 1862. Tell the audience about that date.
0: Yeah, so uh, part of the point of this book was to better understand Longstreet's politics, and the important thing to know about Longstreet's uh, 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 life story is that it, it the, its heart is a political about face, as I put it uh, in the in the book. That is to say, a man who was a pro slavery white Southern Confederate secessionist uh, product of plantation society. The second most important Confederate general after Robert E. Lee will, will after the war, in a very surprising turn, embrace Reconstruction, uh, Black voting, uh, the, the Lincoln's Republican Party, and so on, and become a, a pariah among former Confederates uh, as a result. So, Part of the challenge of looking at his early life, and I'll get to the the date you refer to, you know, momentarily, is to say, well, were there signs, you know, early on, uh, that he was going to, you know, break ranks with with uh, with you know, white southern orthodoxies and ideology, and with secessionism and the Confederacy and the defense of slavery, and so on. And what I found was. Uh, the answer is no. In a sense, it would have been fascinating as a biographer to see, you know, early signs in his life that he was going to become a political maverick, as I've just put it. But, but in fact, he was very much steeped in Confederate politics, a true believer in the racial politics of the Confederacy. He had a, an uncle who was his surrogate father, a man named Augustus Baldwin Longstreet, who was one of the most sort of fire-eating uh, pro-slavery, pro-secession uh, uh sort of. Uh, uh, voices in the entire South and, and that was the environment in which Longstreet was raised. He rushed to join the Confederate Army. He didn't hesitate uh, about secession. He saw the Confederacy as a as a uh, sort of project to, to preserve and extend slavery. and and he gave speeches to his troops, and June 1862 is one one uh, example in which he, you know, mouthed and proclaimed all of the sort of talking points of Confederate propaganda—the the, the the need, as he saw it, to defend slavery and white supremacy against uh, against uh, uh, you know northern abolitionism. So all of this is to say that that um, it, it kind of raises the ante for us as we try to explain his post-war turnaround to 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 confront just how deeply steeped he was. In, in Confederate ideology. And, and this played out in actions as well as words. He he did all he could to punish Black resistance to the Confederacy. African-Americans in the South tried to aid the Union Army and the cause of emancipation in a huge range of ways as soldiers and scouts by fleeing Confederate farms and plantations and making their way to the Union Army's lines. You know, he he, he discouraged and punished such activity. And then It's just an an appalling feature of the Gettysburg campaign when Lee marches into Pennsylvania, resulting in that famous battle in 1863, is that the Confederate Army seized uh, free blacks in Pennsylvania who had never been slaves and enslaved them and sent them south uh, into bondage. And Longstreet participated in this as well and gave orders to his men. Uh, to, to do such uh, such grim work. So, um, he was very much a, a, a sort of diehard Confederate uh, during the Civil War.
1: Now, the Confederates blame Longstreet for the defeat at the Battle of Gettysburg. How long did this blame last?
0: Ah, so this is a, just a fascinating story. So, Longstreet um, had a had a sort of t- tactical argument with Robert E. Lee, the principal uh, Confederate commander in the Eastern Theater of War, head of the Army of Northern Virginia, when that army invaded Pennsylvania. Longstreet wanted to fight uh, in Pennsylvania using defensive tactics, Lee proposed offensive maneuvers, which uh, which resulted in, in a defeat for the Confederates in that three-day battle in July of 1863 uh, at, at Gettysburg. And um, Longstreet was was disappointed that Lee didn't take his advice but Longstreet's reputation as Lee's right-hand man and as the second most important confederate survived this defeat of the confederates in 1863 and and in the wake of that battle and indeed at the end of the civil war Longstreet was considered by by confederates and ex-confederates to be one of the great heroes of the war on their side that all changes once he has this political turnaround that I alluded to. Once he embraces Reconstruction and black voting and and Lincoln's Republican Party in 1867, uh, there's a political backlash against that decision by those white Southerners who don't uh, want the uh, change. You know, who are opposed, who are opposed to emancipation, opposed to black citizenship, opposed to any power sharing or any any kind of interracial politics. And so as part of their political punishment and backlash against his about face, they begin retroactively to blame him for having lost the Battle of Gettysburg and indeed having perhaps lost the entire war for the Confederates. They claim that he not only disagreed with Lee's plan and was somewhat ambivalent about it, but that he actively sabotaged Robert E. Lee and the Confederate army at Gettysburg by delaying a crucial attack and so on. There's absolutely no evidence of that. Longstreet uh, was not enthusiastic about Lee's plan, but he deferred to Lee and carried out Lee's orders and Longstreet's own accounts of this battle stress that deference that he had ultimately yielded to Lee. But because he was a political pariah after the war, he made a convenient scapegoat for the loss of the war by Confederates. And to get to your very good question, the impulse to blame him first emerges in uh, during Reconstruction, but it persists for decades and decades and decades. And indeed, there's been a sort of cottage industry among historians of Gettysburg, who have litigated and relitigated whether Longstreet did deserve the blame for the for the uh, you know for the loss of this uh, battle, and his reputation as the kind of premier scapegoat of the Confederacy. The contribution of my book is to say, you know, let's understand this. This accusation for what it was, it was part of a political backlash against against his post-war politics.
1: Now, you told us that uh, Longstreet went to live with his uncle. Tell us more about why did he have to leave and live with his uncle?
0: So his father dies. And again, the uncle becomes a kind of surrogate father. This is this is before the war and part of the, the Longstreet's kind of, uh, uh, you know, um, coming of age, his, his, his political coming of age. He, he lives for a time with the uncle, certainly imbibes a lot of the uncle's pro-slavery worldview. But then crucially, Longstreet goes off to West Point uh, to train, uh, to be a soldier, and he becomes a career soldier. And at West Point, uh, an, another very important influence comes into his life uh, and that influence is is that of his friend, and West Point classmate. Uh, us. Grant, of course, would go on to become the most important hero of the Union Army during the war and and uh, and president during Reconstruction. Grant and Longstreet become fast friends, and their friendship survives the war. And again, part of what I argue in the book is that it, you know, in a way, The uncle, Augustus Baldwin Longstreet, with his defense of slavery and secession, was sort of like sitting on one of Longstreet's shoulders, metaphorically. And U.S. Grant was sitting on the other, representing a very different set of choices, a very different vision of America's future. And Longstreet follows the sort of teachings of his uncle into and through the war. But during the post-war period, Longstreet um, really comes to, um, uh, you know, the belief that he should be following as a sort of political pole star, U.S. Grant. And part of the reason for that turnaround is that when the Confederates finally surrender in Virginia in 1865 at Appomattox, U.S. Grant, who's the commander of the the, uh, federal armies there, offers to the Confederates extremely lenient, generous terms of surrender. He says, in effect, "You, you Confederate soldiers are free to go home. There'll be no reprisals, no 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 rounding up of people and throwing them in prison or uh, mass executions or any of the kind of things that had happened after civil wars uh, on other occasions in human history. Instead, you, you, you're you all free to go go home provided you promise not to raise arms against, against the Union again and, and that you'll obey the laws and force in the places where you live. Longstreet, very unusually among Confederates, viewed this offer of grants, this generous offer, through the lens of the two men's friendship. And Longstreet really took the offer to heart. And he believed that he, he accepted the terms and the spirit in which Grant offered them. What Grant wanted at that moment was not to exonerate the Confederates, but to affect their repentance, to give them an incentive to change, to accept the new order, uh, 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 the Union victory, the end of slavery, and so on. Most Confederates, alas, Um, remained defiant and and were not repentant at all. But Longstreet, again, viewing this offer through the lens of of their friendship, um, believed that he did have a responsibility to repent and to turn the page and to give the victors a chance to govern.
1: Now, in chapter two, you mentioned that Longstreet was a national Confederate hero during the first two years of the war. Tell us more about that.
0: So again, the thing I'd like to emphasize is that, um, is that uh, Longstreet was a very, very important Confederate during the war, really uh, second only to Lee uh, as a commander in the most important Confederate army, the Army of Northern uh, Northern Virginia. And this too, in essence, uh, is, is critical background for understanding the, the, the symbolism and the political importance of his post-war uh, conversion. Um, Longstreet becomes for for uh, for Republicans, for folks on the union side, for the proponents of reconstruction uh, a, a very important symbol of the, the the very persistent hope that southern hearts and minds could be changed, that southern allegiance to the Union, Uh, Can be, you know, could be rekindled. Um, So yes, Longstreet was a was a a, an important Confederate, and that made him an especially important symbol after the war, of the sort of promise of Reconstruction. So when he declares that he'll support. Black voting and Reconstruction after the war, he is, he is excoriated by former Confederates, but he's embraced by Northerners, by, by uh, uh, again, people in the R- Lincoln's Republican Party um, who see him as, as an important convert to their worldview.
1: Now, you also told us about the pen name that Longstreet wrote under. Tell us about the messages in some of the writings there.
0: Well, Longstreet, I try to make the point over the course of this book that Longstreet um, had a sort of fascinating voice um, and that previous histories have have uh, sort of failed to tune in that voice. Long, Longstreet has a reputation in the existing scholarship of being a sort of gruff man a few words who... Uh, you know, was a little sort of mentally dull, if you will. In fact, he was an incredibly prolific writer of military dispatches, of speeches. We've already talked about uh, some of that, of of um, letters, uh, newspaper articles, editorials, uh, essays, and a 690-page memoir in which he recounted the story of his you know, of his life. So, so uh, you know, part of the purpose of the book is to say all of these different kinds of writing that Longstreet um, did during the war and letters to newspapers and in speeches and again, in military dispatches after the war and in articles and essays and in his memoir and so on, um, I've been trying to make the case in the book that this constitutes a kind of body of work that we ought to, you know, we ought to carefully analyze.
1: Now we're going to move on to Reconstruction. Can you tell us about uh, Longstreet with the Mississippi Klan and how he supported blacks during the Reconstruction?
0: Yeah, so it's it's just fascinating. So at the end of the war, uh, we have uh, a brief period of Reconstruction under Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson, and Andrew Johnson proved to be a very bad president. He was excessively lenient to the former Confederate elite. He allowed them to come back into power and to reimpose a a form of subordination on newly freed African-Americans that was uh, sort of akin to to slavery. He was a very divisive figure. Congress tried to impeach him. Longstreet settles in New Orleans after the war and he looks around the political landscape and he sees Johnson's divisiveness and the, the defiance of the recently defeated white South and and uh, all kinds of racial strife and conflict. And he has a decision to make about, about uh, uh, you know, who on this political landscape to support. So in March of 1867, the U.S. Congress, very upset with the way Johnson's leadership has essentially allowed the old former Confederates to come back into power, the U.S. Congress uh, passes its own reconstruction plan for creating a new new war, post-war world in the South, uh, meant to supersede uh, the, the failed policies and divisive policies of Johnson. And that congressional plan calls for the enfranchisement or granting the vote to Black men in the South, uh, many of whom had served in the, in the Union Army, who had fled from Confederate farms and plantations to enlist in the Army of Liberation. And uh, the the congressional plan requires that the seceded states go through a number of steps in which they create new governments that are interracial, in which African-Americans for the first time can vote and hold office and have some basic civil rights protections. So in New Orleans, as this congressional plan passes, Longstreet is invited by a local newspaper to weigh in the vast majority of white Southerners, former Confederates, opposed this congressional plan. They rather liked Johnson's leniency, which had kind of coddled them and allowed them to regain power. So Longstreet is asked to weigh in, and to the surprise, I've alluded to this in some of my previous answers, to the surprise of of, uh, just about everybody, he declares that he supports Congress's new plan, the centerpiece of which was Black voting, and that he thinks that, that White Southerners ought to give these new governments, which will be coalitions of, of various members of the Republican Party, and Lincoln's Republican Party, the Party of Emancipation, of the Union, of the Northern Victory, uh, and so on, uh, a, a try. This leads to the backlash uh, I described. And scholars who have studied this conversion of Long streets have, you know, puzzled over the reasons for it, and I'll say a few words about that but also have failed to appreciate what a commitment he made at that moment to the idea of interracial politics in the South. So um, Longstreet was motivated, as I, as I alluded to, by his friendship with U.S. Grant. He was motivated by a desire to have sort of peace and prosperity for his family, and he felt that the policies of, of, of the sort of defiant, unreconstructed Southern whites were, were not going to bring peace. Um, and he was motivated, too, by his experiences in New Orleans, which was this fascinating setting. The city of New Orleans had a Black leadership class, so-called Afro-Creoles, uh, uh, sort of mixed-race men of French and Spanish descent, uh, many of whom had served in the Union Army. Some had, had even served as officers. These men were very bold about staking claims to full civil rights and equality and d- desegregation and Black voting and so on. And Longstreet was very impressed by them and became their political uh, ally. And and he committed himself when he wrote those initial letters to reconstruction. And then even though the backlash against him was fierce, I, I, it's impossible to convey how fierce uh, Confederates, ex-Confederates, accused Longstreet in 1867, 1868 of being a Benedict Arnold, a Judas, you know, Lucifer. They 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 wrote in the newspaper that they wished he died during the war of the grievous wounds he had sustained in, in one of its battles. Longstreet responds to all of this not by backing down, but by doubling down. He doubles down on his commitment to reconstruction. And what that means in effect is he takes all kinds of actions. He becomes an operative in the Republican Party, which is the party of black civil rights back in this era. He um, uh, becomes the leader of an interracial Louisiana state militia, the purpose of which is to defend these reconstruction governments from, from the opposition of, of uh, white supremacists. He works to integrate the school system. He really you know, goes, goes out on a limb to defend reconstruction. Unfortunately for him and for for others in favor of change and progress, the the the, the white supremacist backlash against Reconstruction was really fierce. Uh, fraud, intimidation, propaganda, and violence on a massive scale was marshaled against Reconstruction by groups like the Ku Klux Klan and by variants of the Klan in various states in Louisiana, called the White Leagues, for example, and the White Leagues basically attacked the project of Reconstruction, both both uh, rhetorically and literally. And New Orleans became the site of a series of bloody street battles between the, the duly elected Republican Reconstruction government of Louisiana and of New Orleans and white supremacist paramilitary units that wanted to bring that government down.
1: Now, you talk about Longstreet being appointed to the U.S. Marshal. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, so uh, uh, to sort of pick up where I left off, the culminating street battle in New Orleans is something called the Battle of Canal Street, September 1874, an attempted coup by white supremacists. And Longstreet attempts with his interracial militia to fight off that that coup, but uh, it is really, the, it, the coup attempt spells the beginning of the end of Reconstruction in Louisiana. And Longstreet is, uh, you know, very uh, sort of discouraged by the opposition in Louisiana. And he it pulls up stakes and goes back to Georgia to uh, essentially uh, build a new political base there and, and start over. Uh, Deirdre, hang on one second. I, I, I have a nosebleed all of a sudden. It's very dry in my apartment. I'm just in Georgia where he has kin uh, and he starts a new phase of his life. He still supports black civil rights and voting. He uh, uh, accepts a federal patronage position as U.S. Marshal for Georgia, and that the, one of the purposes of that job is to protect black voters from this this white supremacist violence to which I've alluded. Uh, but he he also begins in this period to focus on defending his wartime record against those detractors who would blame him for Confederate defeat. And he begins, to to retreat a little bit from the the advanced position he had taken during Reconstruction. He is more and more now inclined, as he gets older, to emphasize the theme of reunion between the North and South rather than the theme of Reconstruction. He tries a little bit to claw back some of his lost popularity among Southern whites. And he illustrates, in that sense, the ways in which White Southern Republicans willing to support Reconstruction were a key part of the governing coalition of that period, but also, in a sense, the weak link. Uh, Longstreet, um, again, sort of backs off or retreats into a posture of reconciliationism, the, the, in which is the main theme is to is to celebrate. The reunion of white soldiers in in blue and gray and the and the the sort of a reunion of the national family. He focuses a great deal too in the last years of his life on his wartime record and on defending it. And he has some success doing that, although for many ex-confederates, the fact that he had, and continued to support black voting was something for which they could never forgive him. And they kept up the sort of drumbeat of accusations against him for having lost the war.
1: Well, we would like to thank you for being on the program. And tell us the next project you'll be working on.
0: Well, thanks so much for asking. I am, uh, again, so, so, I find biography so compelling. I'm writing a biography of Clara Barton, the great Civil War nurse and humanitarian Red Cross founder. An epic life. Uh, uh, Won't be easy to, to do justice to it, but I'll do my best.
1: We'll be looking forward to that book. And again, thank you for being on the podcast.
0: My pleasure.